This Torah class is brought to you by TorahAnytime.com. Not the big, big conglomerates, but the regular news and story after story of, of how the mayor, why did the mayor, like, tweet that? Why did the mayor tweet that? Like, what was he, what was wrong with him? That, you know, it's under investigation. Why did, like, there was all this commentary against the mayor of Jersey City for saying what he had been updated with immediately. Like, right after it happened, he was, like, already updated. Yeah, this is this is a full-on terrorist attack. But not just any terrorist attack. It's an anti-Semitic terrorist attack. But that all got, like, brushed under the carpet, even with the, the loss of the... of the Even trying to uh, besmirch the reputation of the mayor of the city itself, who obviously was the most abreast to the situation. So... What is going on over there, you know? And, and the fact that I'm flying in tonight is like, you know, and I'm flying into a city whose main synagogue was ransacked the next day. Like, the, the major synagogue called Nesach in Los Angeles was, was torn asunder. Torah scrolls on the floor torn to pieces. The, you know, the, the whole thing was torn to pieces. And the... Uh, and, and that's... That's Los Angeles the next day, in and out of the news. I bet you, raise your hand if you didn't even hear about that. Raise your hand if you didn't even hear about that. Yeah. One the main synagogues in Los Angeles the very next day, not newsworthy. Now, of course, Beverly Hills, it's in Beverly Hills, Beverly Hills. You know, local LA news carried it. You know, they carried it. And I think uh, I must have seen it on Drudge. You know, Drudge picks up all these stories. Thank God Matt Drudge is Jewish, so he's at least... You know, it was about, the, the New Jersey thing was about Jews in Drudge the whole time. From the very first story, it was about the kosher market where Jews were attacked in the Drudge report, like, right away. Matt Drudge is Jewish. And he's, uh, you know, he's got some interesting views, but he for sure is, you know, a news conglomerate that, that's going to be honest about anti-Semitism. How was that for a rant? So... All of that was just to get you to last week's Parsha, where Jacob's praying to God and saying, Save me, miyad achi, miyad from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Asa. That's a very strange thing to say. Save me from the, the hand of my brother, the hand of Asa. He's only talking about one person, and it's Asa with 400 men waiting to slaughter Jacob and his family when they tried to come back to Israel because he had promised to kill him. That's why he left. And, and by the way, just a side note, something that you should contemplate, is how did Asaph know after several decades that this is the day that Jacob's showing up? What do you think? He spent several decades with 400 men camped on the border? How does he know? How does he know he's coming? Does he have an AWAC reconnaissance airplane that he's been sent up? And they're like, oh... Jacob's coming with his wives wives and kids. How do you know that was the day? But he knows. And he's there. And Jacob asked this strange question. Save me from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Asa. So what do we learn from that? So there's probably a ton of things you can learn from that, as everything in the Torah has 70 interpretations. Did you know that the Torah has 70 interpretations for every word? You knew that? Yeah, 70, it's the same Torah all the way through. It's not like the New Testament that has a thousand, inter, thousand versions. It has a thousand versions. The Torah has one version. It has one version. 
and every word has 70 interpretations. 70 interpretations. And guess what? It gets much bigger than that because every letter has 70 interpretations. And the, uh, so meaning once you start putting letters together, things start getting exponentially meaningful or for us maybe meaningless because we don't know what anything means in that book. It's very interesting, the 70 that every, because think about it, if you have a sentence, anyone here in math, anyone studied math, university math? Anyone? You did? A little bit? So what if you have a 10-word sentence and every word has 70 interpretations? What's the possible meanings of this sentence? Seventy times seventy, right? No, no, no. The each each letter there's seventy uh, seventy possibilities. Seventy to the power of ten. Seventy to the power of ten. So how many? What is that sentence now? How many, how many words are there? Uh, don't do that. Sorry. It's a giant quantity <laughs> yeah. in one sentence of the Torah. And I thank God, like over my years, I've got to learn quite a bit of Jewish mysticism, and we're coming off of. Uh, you know, Kabbalah, and we're, we're studying the text. But we're actually going into the different meanings of the words and rereading it, and then rereading it, and then rereading it, and rereading it. And after a while, you're, first of all, a couple of things happen. After a while, your mind's blown. Another thing that happens is that you start to feel a spiritual connection. I don't know what it is, but you just start like, I think something about our mind, when it gets blown, that you start feeling connected. You know, and so... All of a sudden, you start to feel really connected, and and then you look at the teacher who's teaching you this stuff, and you're starting to think, what does he really know? Like, if he's able to get me, a total idiot, to have my mind blown on this one sentence, what does he know? And whenever we call him rabbi, you know, sometimes if we over-rabbi him, you know what he says to us? He says, you know, if you could just stop calling me rabbi so much and we're like why what's the big deal you're the rabbi and he's like because it's an embarrassment and then, why this is because if you had any if you had one minute with my rabbi my rabbi if you had one minute with my rabbi you would not be calling me rabbi he says but you should know my rabbi even though I can't even touch his toenails like I'm not even at his toenail if I stretch he said that my rabbi said that it was a terrible embarrassment when we called him Rebbe because of his Rebbe. How can you call me Rebbe? If you knew my Rebbe, you would see I'm not a Rebbe. And his Rebbe said that about his Rebbe all the way back to Sinai where people knew the deepest secrets of all reality. Secrets that make the experience of LSD look like vitamin C. And it's kind of interesting for us, because I meet a lot of people who are not sure Torah is even anything more than just another narrative, next to all the other ancient narratives, like Christianity, Islam, you know, those are all narratives, Hinduism. Like, I meet a lot of people who just think it's just another narrative. And it's so sad for me, because they don't have access to these experiences. Because you have to know so much Torah even to get to sit with a Kabbalist who's the real deal and then suddenly realize oh my gosh like, there's no way they know this much but sometimes there's cool things like for example you can go to the Amazon and get to some like you can go to the Amazon jungle and like get to some tribe somewhere 
and join their all-night ceremony and listen to the songs they sing and notice that every single syllable of the song is either a yud or a hey or a vav or an aleph, meaning all they're doing is names of God the whole entire night. And they've been doing this for thousands of years uninterrupted in the jungles. And I got to meet those people because I'm a spokesman at like United Nations, gatherings of tribes, where they will only invite Jews, they will not invite religious people. Only, only Jews and tribes because they consider us the highest of all tribes because of our prophecy. Because those people have other substances in the jungles. We have prophecy. Prophecy is way beyond like any brew you could drink in the Amazon in the middle of the night with some medicine chief. You know, they know we're dealing with prophecy. And they even, they, they just, the latest, the latest class I gave in Manhattan, with the whole front row of this giant theater, was just body-painted people, people in loincloths. Their translators were, were not translating Spanish or Portuguese. Their translators were translating dialects that no one's ever heard before to translate to the audience. And... And they gave me first spot. Like I, I, I was the first teacher. I was introduced by Deepak Chopra, and and it was just amazing. And and you should have seen these. Many of these Indians had never left the jungle before this. This is all in honor of the rainforest. Obviously, we're trying to protect the rainforest by bringing awareness. And, and so you should have seen their faces because because their speeches were supposed to be translated, but their translators said, "Why don't I just translate for them?" You know, while other people are speaking, so their translators translated for them all the English speeches. And you should have seen their faith. They were loving every minute of me discussing Jewish mysticism in our own rainforest, which is the people themselves. See, they're worried about trees and obviously civilizations in those jungles, but, but each Jew is a tree on fire today. Every Jew is a tree on fire, and the saddest thing is he doesn't realize he's supposed to jump into some water and just save himself. Like, no one knows it. They're, in fact, they think it's like, they think they're progressive. They think they're progressive. And you know, I meet these guys because they often want to marry Gentiles. What is it about the guys who want to marry Gentiles? Like, the girls are like, I don't mind marrying a Jew, but there's just not a lot of them around. And I'm like, yeah, I wonder why. It's because the guys don't want to marry Jews. You know why? Because they have Jewish mothers. That's all you need to see. Once you've taken it from a Jewish mother enough years, you'll go for your Filipino massage therapist, please. You know, like, she's at, she's at least happy I came home. You know, like, rather than getting slammed over the head for being ten minutes late for, for the next two hours. You know, and they, they, they've watched their fathers get thrashed. They've watched their siblings get thrashed. And by the way, even though it sounds like I'm not speaking nicely about Jewish women... But let me explain. Jewish women are genetically predisposed to thrash their families. Okay? They're there to thrash their families. That's what they're set up to do. Now, here's the caveat. If the Jewish woman has a full Jewish education, what does she thrash for? She thrashes for spiritual continuity, the continuation of the family's chain from Sinai throughout the rest of history. She's there to help Jewish continuity. But if she wasn't raised in Judaism, she still thrashes, but for random stuff. <laughs> random stuff. And you know what I'm talking about here. If you're raised by an observant Jewish woman, if you're raised by an observant Jewish woman, you know she thrashed, 
but you always knew she was right. And if you were raised by a secular Jewish woman, you were just getting thrashed for no reason at all. And that's why you'll find that the majority of Jewish men, like I'm going into L.A., the majority of Jewish men in L.A., you know, that's, those two are available there. The majority of Jewish men in L.A. are like surgically reinstalling their foreskins. Wow. <laughs> Meaning, seriously, for what? For what? Why would I put up with it? Why would I put up with that? Like, for what? Like, what, what, what did I do to deserve that for the next 50 years? And whereas in the, in the observant Jewish community, the fact that Jewish women thrash their husbands and thrash their, their children, it's always, the thrashing is always about spiritual connection. Now, of course, thrashing is not a way to get people to be spiritually connected, but they can't help themselves because they're all the daughters of Rivka, Rebecca. And Re- Rebecca, she had a bit, she didn't realize she had twins. She just had this like schizo baby inside of her. Like when she walked by idolatry places that, you know, it would like to try to get out and go crazy in her belly. And when she walked by synagogues, it would try to get out and go crazy. So she's like, I got a schizo split personality baby inside. Now she found out later she had twins who? Yaakov and Asa were inside her belly. And you know what she said? You know what Rebecca said? When she realized, before she went and found out there were twins, before she found out there were twins, she went to, she said, What am I even living for? What am I living for? Why am I even alive? Now, most women you meet, you know, they're trying to have kids because they just want someone to give to that doesn't bite. You know, kids are loyal to a fault. They're like puppies. You know, and and women are desperate to give, and they want to give, and they want to give, and they want to give. But it's hard to give. Giving's very vulnerable. Who says it's going to get so received? You know, I I myself, like, I'm a pretty sensitive guy, but it took me 17 years to realize that when my wife would put out the kind of food she was putting out, over all the years that she, her language of love is service, which is not mine at all, I missed it for 17 years straight. I was just looking at the food, looking at my wife and just saying, like, this is what you serve on a Tuesday night? I mean, two types of meat. Do you know there's neighbors that we have that didn't have chicken on Shabbat? And my daughters would, like, look at me like, and, I, and my wife would be like, meanwhile, I just, I just didn't even get it. It's not easy to give. She gave for 17 years without me really receiving. It's very vulnerable and very painful. Children, on the other hand, they're so dependent, man. They're so, like, they they need you. And everything you give is received. But the Jewish women don't have children to make their lives meaningful. They have children to make to have the Jewish people go another generation. The reason Jewish women are willing to suffer, possibly, you know, in most of our history in Europe, very likely your child won't even live because of the anti-Semitism we suffered there. But they're going to have them anyway. And we even learned that from Amram and Amram, that Moses and Aaron's father, that when Pharaoh said every firstborn shall die, he divorces his wife, Yocheved, 
He divorces Yocheved and says, like, we're not going to have kids if they're going to die. And Miriam, his daughter, came up to her father and said, you're worse than Pharaoh. Pharaoh, maybe he'd find that boy. Maybe he wouldn't. You, the boy's found, meaning there's no boys because you're, you're no longer with mommy. By the way, all the Jewish people divorced. When they saw the leader of the Jews divorced, they divorced because they're not to be together because they're not to have kids because of Pharaoh's decree of killing the, the male children. And then she said, you're worse than Pharaoh with a second reason because Pharaoh may or may not find the baby. For you, those babies are never going to be born. Did I say that already? And then she said, you're worse than Pharaoh. Pharaoh's only the boys. You're the girls and the boys. That's a Jewish woman. That's a Jewish woman. Like, have the kids even if they're thrown in the Nile. It's worth it. Because Jewish women have their kids not because they're looking for meaning. Our meaning's from God, not from our children. This is why I was in shul last week, and I, I had already prayed, but I wanted to go find my guests who were in a Karlebach minion. So, like, Karlebach minions just kind of go on and on and on. So I was done praying, and, like, came across town, got to the Karlebach minion, and they were only in, like, Lachadodi. They were, like, you know, they're all dancing around. So when they finally got to the evening service, when they got to the evening service, I offered one, you know, very egalitarian man to hold his baby. So he could pray, you know, because if you're in the silent prayer, you're not supposed to be holding a baby. So I offered to hold this baby, and, and he looks at me, and he says, the baby's very attached. And I didn't want to say it to him, but this, what I would have said was, who's attached to who you're hmm. And where'd the baby learn that? You know, if you notice most babies in homes of, like, serious observant homes... The, you can play musical babies. Like the baby, like during the Shabbos meal, the baby's like, okay, it's by that guest, and now 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 it's by that. Like it's like musical babies the whole night. You know, the baby's just going everywhere. Not every baby, some, some babies are different. Of all my kids, I had a couple babies that only wanted us. But, but you know, um, as a whole, like, as long as they're being held, they were good. You know, they're just happy to be held. By the way, I took the baby anyway. <laughs> it hung out with me for a while. It actually hung out with me for a while. And then, uh, but then eventually, it, it, I don't think it quite realized. And then it finally looked up at me and went like, ah! And went back to its father. You guys are done? Four o'clock? Oh, right, tunnel tours. Whoa, who's going on the tunnel tours? Anyone going on the tunnel tours? Shalom. Get it up. Have fun on the tunnel tours and, and put in some good words when you get to the uh, Holy of Holies. Because you're going to be right across from the Holy of Holies. Okay? Save it. Shalom. Shalom. Um, you, you, guys, you're welcome anytime. Uh, I'm leaving for two weeks, but I'm on YouTube every day. Fresh videos. Um, thank you. So check it out. So check it out. Jacob says, save me from my brother. Miad achi, miad esav. I want to just finish that and then we can call it a day. But why is he distinguishing these two? Like, who is his brother and who is esav? They're not the same guy. Who is the brother and who is esav?
Save me from the hand of my brother, the hand of Asaph. And so the answer is, is that Asaph shows up in two forms. He hates us. He wants to destroy us. He is the polar opposite of, like, you got a chosen nation for holy. Well, you got a chosen nation for not holy. And, and they're always going to be, you know, like polar opposites. And what is Asaph's problem? What is Asaph's problem? So Asaph's problem is that, that for his existence, he needs to... I, we, did a, we did a clearing out for the... Well, so Asaph's... So who is Asaph? Who is the brother? And who is Asaph? So the answer is the brother is when Asaph's nice to us. When Asaph's being nice, that's the brother. Who is Miad Asaph? When Asaph's mean to us. Asaph himself's mean, and he's a murderous guy. Like, we know that about Asaph. Asaph's like a, a bloodthirsty guy. He would go out and murder people every day. He murdered people. Like, he was a murderer. A vicious murderer, amongst other things, which I'll leave out. And so Asab has brother, and he also has just pure murder. He also has a head, and he has a body. The brother is Asab's head. The brother, because who's his father? Who's Asab's father? It's Isaac and Rebecca. Like this guy's got holy roots, man. He's the child of the forefathers and the and the foremothers. He's a child of Yitzhak and Rebecca. How bad could he be? The answer is really bad. But he's got a kind of a, a head that can be nice. And in fact, at the end of his life, he was decapitated at the cave of the patriarchs in Hebron. He was decapitated. I'm not going to go into the story of how he was decapitated. It's a weird story. But in the end, his head's chopped off. And it rolls into the cave. His body is left out. His body's not buried there. But to give you a little more detail, he was there to prevent this gigantic entourage of a burial of Jacob, who was brought up from Egypt in this huge entourage. And when they got to the cave, Asaph knew that whoever's buried in that cave, that is the key to Israel. Whoever's buried in that cave gets the key to the land. Hebron is the keyhole of the land of Israel. And Asaph knew this is my last chance to get back the land. And so he tried to prevent the burial. In fact, King David had to rule in Hebron for seven years before he could be the king of Israel. He couldn't be the king in Jerusalem until he first spent seven years getting the key. Seven years, seven always completion. He had a complete key over Hebron before he could rule in Jerusalem. But interestingly, Asaph's head rolls into the cave. That's the brother, Asaph. That's the child of Isaac and Rebecca. But the body, that's out. Now, what's worse? The body of Asaph or the head of Asaph? What's worse? Asaph, brother Asaph, or the, or, sorry, what's worse? The hand of Asaph or the hand of my brother? Which one's worse? Like, you would all think that Asaph's worse and friendly Asaph's better. Well, I'll have you know something. You want to hear an interesting statistic? How many, how many children were killed in the Holocaust? How many children lost their lives in the Holocaust? We know how many. It's about a million. 
We even have a memorial here at Yad Vashem, the children's memorial for the million children lost their lives. How, now, now what, is, what would you call the United States of Asaph today? Is that, my, is that Miad Achi? Is that the hand of my brother? Or is that the hand of Asaph, the murderer? Which one is America? Europe, we know, was the murderer. Europe was for sure the murder in every episode of Europe's history with the Jews was the murder. Because Europe's Asaph. What was America? Is that the hand of my brother? Or is that the hand of Asaph? Which one? It's my brother. Well, guess what? About 10 years ago, in the last major, not the last major Jewish census, but 10 years ago, that when they did a major Jewish census, there were over a million Jews missing. Meaning, over a million Jews have no longer identified on the census as Jews. That's my brother, Asaph. That's when they're friendly. Asaph, in his friendly in his friendly uh, costume, costume. Asaph in his friendly costume is Asaph in his friendly costume. That's who he is. He's still Asaph. It's just a silent scream. You don't hear it. Instead of Mazel Tov at the weddings, it's congratulations. It's just silent as the Jews disappear into the silent hall. Of Jewish assimilation into Western civilization. And we're great assimilators, my goodness. Like no one better assimilates than Jews. There's a girl who uh, was marrying a Gentile in America, and she had an uncle who was observant. And the uncle took her out for lunch. And he said to her, Listen, if you want to marry a Gentile, like, who might have stopped you? I mean, you know, uh, we're totally observant. We watched you grow up in, you know, in L.A., you know. Like, like, no one's expecting you to marry a Jew, okay? Like, we get that. But it's one of the most, it's the second most important decision your whole life. First most is obviously what your life's about. That's more important than who you marry. You've got to figure out what your life's about. And it's, and it's a big mistake to get married before you know that. Because who says you're, when you find, you find out what your life's about, who says your spouse is going to be so excited about that? That's why you must first know what your life's about before you get serious about somebody. And that's not easy. Figuring out what your life's for is like, it's, and it's a double whammy with Judaism because it's the macro. It's like, is Judaism going to be informing my, move, my moves in life? And it's the micro of what my specific life's about. Because every Jew has two things. You know, He has his Jewish hat and he has his individual hat. And they're both like super important, and we have to decide whether we're, how much we're going to be living those things. And then you get married. Anyway, so the uncle said to her, "Listen, this is the second most important decision of your life." And I have to tell you, I can't say I respect it. And she looks at him like, "That's what I thought you were going to say at this lunch, you know? Like, yeah, it was so predictable." He says, "No, you misunderstood me." The reason I say I don't respect it isn't that you're marrying a Gentile. The reason I say I don't respect it is because you have no idea what you're choosing not. That's not called a choice. That is not called a choice. You don't know what you're choosing, so you don't have a choice. There's no power in that choice. It's a, it's an, it's a weak choice. 
because you didn't look at both sides. Who in the world makes choices without looking at both sides? Especially important ones. Which really underlines the, the amazing thing in the observant community is that couples don't touch until they're married. Why? Objectivity. The second you've even held hands, you're no longer making real choices anymore. The second you're holding hands, the choice is out. Things stay objective. Things are so objective in our communities that, that if you like each other, you don't tell each other. Because what if the other one doesn't feel the same way and just gets sucked in because they don't want to hurt you? You always tell a third party. It's always a third party. And that third party will say to that person, like, you know, they liked you a lot. They really thought you were amazing. But, you know, since we're talking about a life of soulmates, you know, they didn't feel you're their soulmate. But they think you're amazing. And, in fact, they even have ideas for you of people they know that they think might be the match for you. Whether they did or didn't, but they let them down easy. There's not a lot of connection. No one's speaking their hearts out with each other because you'll lose your objectivity for the second most important decision of your life. You want to stay as objective as possible, as, as unentangled, unemeshed for such a decision. And especially, I mean, that's, you can't get any more obvious when you look at the cities of, you know, most countries that have 60% divorce rate. Like, who says you're going to beat the odds? Are you naive? And every single one of those 60 out of 100 that divorced, every single one of those 60 out of 100, you think they're under their hoof saying, maybe I'll get divorced? No way. Everyone was like, forever. You know? Everyone was saying forever. But forever didn't work out. And it's scary, you know, because divorce means you'll never, ever be the same again. You know, divorce is like, <laughs> there's only one stage worse than, one stage of hell in this world worse than a bad marriage. Divorce. Once in a while you hear of a clean one, but how many of us have met major truck wrecks? Major truck wrecks who just never, ever, ever lived it down never got out of it. Marriages. And that's, by the way, one of the beauties of marriage is leaving will turn your life to hell. Leaving. Why is that amazing? Because if the, uh, if the alternative is hell, so then you can totally let yourself go into the intimacy of the marriage. You understand? Like, if you know that getting out is that scary, that it could mess the rest of your life up and and bankrupt you with the lawyers counting the money later. If you know the rest of your life could be hell, well, now you're safe to give your heart. Now you're safe to play true intimacy in your marriage. Marriage has to come with hell to pay. All good and powerful relationships, even in business, come with hell to pay. They're contractual. Things that are real come with contracts and they come with hell to pay, and there you get great benefits. There are great benefits available, but you've got to have hell to pay to get there. And this is why anyone who's willing to be a boyfriend or girlfriend, you should just slap them. You just slap them. Oh, that's nice. You want to be that close to me without any consequences. Gee, that's noble. Like, think about it. Anyone who wants to be your boyfriend or girlfriend should either get a cold shower or be slapped. Oh, you want my whole heart? With no consequences. Oh, really? Well, that's easy. No thank you. 
And people never think about this stuff. People just don't think about it. They get all entangled and it's over. So anyway, they're out to lunch and the guy goes on and on about everything I'm saying. And she's just listening and listening and listening and listening. And she finally stops and she says, what do you want me to do? What am I supposed to do? And he says, I'm buying you a ticket to Israel. You know, go ahead and marry, you know, Christopher Cross, you know, marry him. But choose it. Go to Israel, study in Asia Torah for three weeks, and then go back to L.A. and get married. But at least make a choice. And she says, fine. Fine, I get the blessing, and I get your respect. I see why you don't respect it. I'm flying. And he bought her a ticket. And she came here. She started studying. She studied one week. She studied two weeks. Third week, she went to a program called IAT, which was an old program that was run by Rebetzin Weinberg, the Rabbi Noah Weinberg Zetzal's wife. She goes to IAT to study. For the last week, you know, it all women's thing. You know, which is pretty amazing, actually, to study with all women. You know, it's, it's very special to study with all women. Because it's, it's really letting go of something. You know, to, for, in our generation, with like the way feminism is today, like ain't nobody got time for female teachers when I could hear from Rabbi Yom Tov or Rabbi God Friedman. You know, these, these, these uh, charismatic, you know, manly, Teachers, you know, you're gonna go hear a bunch of women speak. No, thank you. Anyway, but she did. She went to she went to Iyat, and at the end of the week of Iyat, she just went like, "I'm not marrying this guy. I'm not gonna marry him." And so she told Mrs. Weinberg, Jefferson Weinberg, she says, "Listen, I'm not marrying him, but." How can I break it off without, like, I'm not breaking it off by mail. I'm not breaking it off on phone. Like, we're engaged. She said, I've got to fly back. I'm going to come right back to Israel, but I just got to fly back and do this in person. So she flies to L.A. And she meets with her fiancé to tell him it's over. And she says to him, it's over. She almost had a heart attack on, on the site. Her, she turns white. Her heart's like busting out of her chest. She can't believe she was going to marry this Nazi. She spends a few days with her parents, flies right back to Israel, goes straight to Iyat. And she tells Robinson Weinberg what he said. Robertson Weinberg replies, in Europe, they killed our bodies. In America, they marry us. Save me from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Asaph. So we're going into Hanukkah, and we're going to light the lights in the darkest of times. 
and the we should know that the light of Europe, which is where the Enlightenment happened, and you know the Industrial Revolution, and like all the progressiveness, all comes from there. I mean, believe me, go east of us right now, not so progressive. You know, once you cross the Jordan Jordan River, you know things are getting less progressive as you go. You know, all progress happens over there. That's the but you should know that their light is darkness. It's kind of like the sun is a good analogy of, of darkness. Like, do you guys see the sun as light or darkness? Answer? Light, right? Oh, yeah? Where are all the stars? Where are all the stars go? You know there's billions of stars visible right now if there wasn't a sun? And obviously you have to be in the right. Right? You know, no smog. And Jerusalem's pretty good, but it's got a lot of ambient light from all the city. Just go down to the negative 45 minutes and see what I'm talking about. Those are up there right now. You can't see them because of the light. The light lines out the stars. The term for a uh, blindness in Judaism is is sagi nahar, which means sagi nahar, which means too much light. Someone who's blind is called too much light, meaning they see way more because they're not blinded by the external features of the world they see around them. Why do you think music's so spiritual? I mean, it hits your nervous system at a speed of sound. It's a couple hundred miles per hour. 700-something. Sight? Sight? It's, I mean, maybe if you see the Alps on the first day of your trip, you'll have a spiritual moment, but you know, a couple days later, it doesn't quite do it the same way. Sound always does it. Music always touches you. Because sight's coming at the speed of light. The speed of light's very fast for our nervous system. It's overwhelming. Just like the sun. Just like the west. Western Civ. Asa. So we celebrated the winter solstice starting next week, Sunday night. We start Hanukkah, we light the first candles in the winter solstice. The darkest time of the year, we light the lights. The true light. The light of the Creator. And what light is that? That's the spiritual light. You can't see it. It's oftenly, often blotted out by the material, physical world we see around us that, that Westerners seem to be so good at manipulating. No, it's not that we're not grateful for our cell phones and our cell phone service, although the cell phones, you know, technology actually comes out of Israel by the Jews, but, but Jews, you can't get better Greeks than Jews. You know, Secular Jews are the ultimate Greeks. But the, it's not that we're not grateful for whatever technologies we have, but, but it does block the light, the spiritual light. That spiritual light is, is really available for all of us if you just close your eyes and say Shema. In Shema, you kind of need a double covering. You know, you see, cover your eyes. You close your eyes like this, you see it. You, everyone close your eyes a moment like this. You see a lot of light. But now take your right hand, press it on, it's tight. You get to the oneness, because nothing and one are the same, because you can't have two nothings. Or nothing times 30 is nothing. And that's when, we, that's when we say our anthem that all there really is is God. All there is is God. Shema Yisrael. 
השם אלוקים לבשם אחד. So may we be blessed as a people, the Jewish people, to get serious station identification that we should come back to our tribe. I don't think there's a single Jew out there of the secular assimilators who, if you showed them an African tribal, sorry, an Amazonian tribal guy or gal dressed up with tattoos and like on the streets of Rio de Janeiro, you know, either selling themselves or working in a cell phone shop or running some little business. I don't think any of our, of our fellow Jewish assimilators would say that that's a nice picture. They would all say, get back to your people. Like, don't sell out something so precious as your tribe. They'd probably even give money. Once the once a assimilated Jew is wealthy, they'd probably more likely give to the National Geographic Protection of Tribes in Africa to maintain their populations from spilling out into, into Rio and into, uh, into you know, the Brazilian cities over there and, and all the other cities. The Jew would more like, an assimilated Jew would more likely give tzedakah, charity, to those National Geographic initiatives than they would to their local synagogue. It's a hypocrisy. Let's help all of us, every one of us, take on right now to help our people realign themselves with this incredible destiny. And that incredible destiny is just right out this window. I don't know if you can focus that other camera in. Right out this window. Is this, you know, it's the Temple Mount. Like, can God, can God make history any more obvious? where things are pointing. And we take it for granted because we came on our team to retain Israel or birthright or whatever. We take it for granted. hundred years ago, not in the wildest dreams, would anyone ever have thought that God was going to pull this off? I mean, God was stuck. What's he supposed to do? The, the prophecies say we're going to be back here and building a third temple and having this giant, massive, global, like, revolution. Back to God. Like, that's what the prophet says. So God's like, what am I going to do? I got Fiddler on the Roof Shtetl Jews. They're hardly going to get this done. Well, I got an idea. What if I create in the Industrial Revolution? We'll get these industrialists, and we'll have, we'll, have, we'll have Jews assimilate into the Enlightenment movement. And, be, and Jews, you know, they're like oil. They always rise to the top like Hanukkah oil rises to the top of the water, they're going to rise up to the top of the industries. And then we'll give them, and then I'm going to infect them with a Zionist bug. Like, they don't keep Shabbat, they don't keep kosher, they don't keep nothing. But I'll infect them with a Zionist bug, and then we'll have their Zionist fervor bring them to the land of Israel, right under the nose of the British, and they'll create a country. And then after we'll be hit by Amalek because we always got to get hit by Asaph's grandson Amalek whenever redemption is coming. So when we left Egypt, Amalek attacks. When we left Persia after, you know, uh, Nebuchadnezzar destroyed first temple and it's the 70th year, we're coming back, Amalek attacks. Haman, who's the great-grandson of the king of Agag, the king of Amalek. Well, then we build second temple and we go into a 2,000-year exile. 
only in 1948 to declare the state of Israel, Amalek attacks right before. And the Germans today, the Nazis, are proven to be directly from the descendants of Amalek. It's been proven, like beyond a shadow of a doubt, just Google it. Google it, you'll see it's there. You cannot argue it. So let us all get ourselves realigned. Let us help other Jews throughout the planet realign. And one of the best ways to do that, by the way, is be a believable Jew. <laughs> because the Judaism they were shown is like so not exciting. You know, it's just not spiritual. And it's, you know, synagogue Judaism. Is, is, you know, if you grew up non-observant, it's a joke. And if you grew up observant, it's boring. And people do not seem very spiritual. At all. I mean, people aren't exactly walking around in robes in the observant community. You know, they're in, they're in like business suits and Stetson hats and stuff. And, like, and you know, they're they're just not looking very friendly. They're looking more like bug repellent, and you're the bug. Now, if you'd like to return Jews to Judaism, it's uh, suggestible that you become the most spiritual Jew that anyone's ever met. You want to go reach out to Jews. Okay, you can learn all the tricks and learn like all the right things to say and like you know, we've got those formulas from the heyday of the Balchuba movement, which was nineteen sixty seven to about two thousand and six. Those years were like, you know, like that that was forty years of of like a gigantic renaissance of Balichuba. So we if you wanna learn what to say, you can learn what to say to help the Jewish people. But I'll tell you the only way you're going to get anyone's attention is by you being the most spiritual person they've ever met. Well, how are you going to do that? And the answer is you study Jewish spirituality and you dedicate yourself and you get your mind disciplined into meditation. You start to understand the names of God and you start to say your blessings with depth. And you treat your holidays like it's the last thing that's ever going to happen to you. And you make kiddish like there's no tomorrow. pray like you mean it and you, you go deep and deeper and deeper and you find a teacher who's, who's got it not just who knows a lot of Jewish law a teacher who's got it he knows he knows and it's coming up it's radiating off his skin on her skin and you make that person your teacher until you've absorbed enough light off that person and absorbed enough through years of intensive spiritual discipline then go say the right things. You gotta still say the right things. <laughs> you can't, can't not know what to say. You know, people have specific questions, and those questions change, you know, yearly. There's some core questions like, is there a God? Is the Torah divine? Or is it, you know, a man written narrative? You know, you, know, you gotta deal with those core questions, but you really gotta be up to date. And so you gotta be like as spiritual as Moses, and you have to be as modern as. Uh, you know, Elon, Elon Musk, Elon Musk. You know, you got to be both. As Perez says, you have to be as ancient as the Ten Commandments and as modern as nanotechnology. And be the most spiritual person, dedicated to spirit and the spirit world, the tribe, tribe, tribal Judaism.
So you won't be able to smell this live, but I'll end this class with a little uh, Livona. Livona is one of the one of the twelve spi- eleven spices of the temple, and I have my handy dandy digital Livona burner. And this this is a AliExpress two bucks, and this is Livona, one of the spices that was burned. I use it in meditation. One of the spices that was burned in the in the temple during temple times. And so you're not allowed to put all eleven together, but you can burn one. Livona is quite an amazing smell. Might take a while to get to you. I think I need to refill it a little bit. Anyone want to smell the Livona? Shalom, everyone. Uh, If you've enjoyed this class, please uh, click on all the appropriate things. Subscribe, follow, share. I don't know what platform you're watching this, so just uh, hit all the right stuff. And please join the Media Club and help support it. YomTovMediaClub.com. It's a set and forget, like minimal amounts. I only want minimal amounts. Get 10 bucks a month to keep our equipment running and that I can continue hiring people to get these messages to the world at large. If you can't, if, after everything I said, it's like, you should be doing this, but if you're not doing it, at least help me do it. Yeah, like, help me do it. You've just experienced another Torah class brought to you by TorahAnytime.com.